Now, let's get back to Romans 13. So, you follow. I'm going to read um, just the two verses. We've read uh, the whole chapter last week. Um, let me read you the, the first two verses. Very um, incendiary uh, subjects, folks. Uh, <laughs> boy, you know, I, it seems like every time I'm in some kind of trio or group of more than two, somebody's asking me a question about some kind of political uh, something or other. Um, it's it just, it's just hard to get away from, but, um, uh, Paul writes, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. I like that. Then he says, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed And those who resist will incur judgment. Now, guys, um, I I say this uh, somewhat frequently, but, uh, you know, you you all know uh, that the first two chapters of Genesis have to do with God's creative order. And he creates this uh, this sinless uh, environment. And in Genesis chapter three, everything changes because sin enters, man falls, etc., the, the, the problem is, I'm not sure that we're um, duly impressed with the ravages of the fall in us. I'm not really sure that we understand just how, how damaged we are. Uh, we're far more wicked than we ever care to admit. Um, it, it's... <laughs> It's one of our our um, our spiritual illnesses that we simply don't know what all the the fall has done to us. Now, the reason I start like that is because of a a statement I want to read you that comes out of Judges twenty one. You know this statement. Um, it it says, uh, in fact, it's repeated several times in the book of Judges. It's the last verse in the book book of Judges as well, and it says this: In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Guys, left to ourselves, that would be us. That would be the culture. That would be uh, how we live. There's no king in Israel, so everybody does just exactly what they want to do. If there are no speed limits, how fast do you drive? As fast as I want to. When there's no king in Israel, everybody does what's right in their own eyes because of the ravages of sin. That's what the fall did to us, guys. It made us self-orbiting, self-consumed humans. And when there's no um, no king, then everybody does what's right in their own eyes. And so God, in his wise providence, um, has put in place the state. The state to prevent anarchy. Because left to ourselves, that's what we would be uh, into, anarchy. Because everyone would, would do in his, what is wise in his own eyes, what is right in his own eyes. Now, so with, with that background, Paul opens by saying we're to be subject to these governing authorities. We're told what to do in verse 13. And then we're told why in verse, excuse me, in verse 1 of 13. Because... There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. That's what we talked about last week. 
that ultimately the state is rooted in the sovereignty of God. And we have we struggled with that, guys, when we start thinking of governments that are so wicked, like uh, Nazism, uh, Hitler's Nazism, uh, Joseph Stalin, uh, Nero, etc. But the, the argument of Paul is that um, that governments are in place at the decree, not only government, but governments are in place at the decree and the ordination of God, and we are to submit for that reason. Then we come to verse 2, and we are given another reason why we should do what we are commanded to do in verse 1. What we're commanded to do is to be subject to governing authorities. And then he reasons with us by saying, you know, it's just an expression of God's sovereignty. And then he comes to verse 2 and gives us another reason why you and I are should submit. And it is simply this. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. So, the other reason that he gives is that if you fail to submit to the governing authorities, you will you'll have to deal with God. You'll be punished. Now, guys, um, I told you that this is a complex issue. I've been saying that for four weeks. It's, it's nuanced indeed. The question that I'd like to address tonight is, is the obedience that, that the scriptures have in mind to be an absolute obedience? We've already looked last week at one instance, um, at one place in the New Testament where that doesn't seem to be so. We looked at Acts chapter 5 verse 29 where Paul says, where Peter says, we must obey God and not you. Now, what I want to do is try to address this whole thing about when the government is to be resisted, when the government is to be disobeyed. And I'm suggesting to you that it is not an absolute obedience, and I think that's pretty easy to demonstrate from the Scriptures. Okay, so let me give you just a little bit of backdrop, a background about um, resisting governments. Um, the first one occurs in um, John 19. John 19, 11, where Jesus resists the government. You know, Pilate, he's, in, he's on trial in front of Pilate. And uh, Pilate says, don't you know that I have the authority to, uh, you know, to do you in if I want to? And his, re- his reply is this. You would have no authority over me at all unless it has been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over, you, over to you has the greater sin. Now, gang, notice a couple of things. First of all, both by way of implication. First of all, Pilate does have authority. Jesus says he does. That is, you you got it, but it's it's authority that was given to you. But don't ever. I mean, we cannot ever deny that the government has authority. It's a it's a it's a delegated authority indeed. But he does recognize an authority. It's an authority given to him by God, and he is therefore responsible to God as to how that that authority is used. The other place where um, where it does seem to limit. Our, um, our obedience to the government is the famous passage in Mark 12 where, where he's asked, uh, do we pay taxes? Am I supposed to pay taxes? And Jesus, as you know, that famous, uh, he takes the denarius and he says, render under Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Do you notice that not by implication, but by clear instruction, there is a limit. There is a sphere in which the government is to legitimately operate. The, 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 the one specific here is taxation. You know, guys, I don't know how you're ever going to avoid the idea that, um, 
taxation is a legitimate prerogative of, of a governing authority. As, as, as much as they, you might hate taxes, that is a legitimate sphere of their, of their, their authority. But he goes on to say that that's not an unlimited authority. There are things that are Caesar's, yes, but there are things that are not Caesar's. There are things that Caesar cannot do. Caesar is limited. Number one, he's not to be worshipped. He has no divine prerogatives, which Roman governors really wanted to claim for their own. I mean, you know, they wanted to be thought of as divine. But God's authority, um, I mean, that Caesar has authority, but that authority is to be understood in the backdrop of God having a greater authority. Yes, he has an authority, but it is not an unlimited one. And that's what that's part of what Jesus is saying in his response there. Now, guys, um, I'm suggesting as a result of just a brief look at those two texts, that we are to obey the state. As hard as that is for you to swallow, we are to obey the state in all areas of its legitimate authority. But when the state strays from its legitimate God-given function or, or violates the moral law of God, we are to, op- to oppose verbally and by acts of non-compliance. Now, what I want to do is give you three examples where you and I are going to have to disobey any government. Three areas that are um, that it is very clear that the Christian that God's people must render to God and not render to Caesar. Number one, were the state ever to forbid the proclamation of the gospel, the state is to be is to be disobeyed. You see that happening, guys, in Acts four and Acts five. Where Peter is told, don't do that anymore, don't do that preaching, stop that, stop that, stop that. And Peter says, oh, sorry, we've got, I mean, because I'm under a commission that Jesus has given me. Um, he's t- told me to preach the gospel to all the nations, and you can't tell me to stop that. Um, now, guys, you may suffer, as did Peter and, and the disciples, but the, the government, when the government tells me or forbids something that the scriptures has demanded, I must disobey. You know, guys, um, this is a very small, but it does give you some kind of, um, uh, just a little bit of an illustration, which might help. Um, I I went downtown this morning to um, participate in the swearing in of two of our church members who, uh, David uh, Lenore and Wayne Mashburn, who were both sworn into their county offices today. And uh, so I went down there and, um, and there was a preacher that prayed. Now, guys, (laughs) Um, let's just say that I had been asked to pray. I wasn't. I'm a nobody. I wasn't asked to pray. So, I mean, but I'm just saying, what if I had? Now, years ago, when we, maybe Susie will remember this, but years ago when we were in Ocala, I was asked to pray uh, before the Orange Bowl football game. And I forget what year that was. You know, I don't know who was playing. But uh, the guy who was the head of the Orange Bowl committee in Miami was a was a PCA elder, and he knew me, and he thought I had a wonderful voice. 
So he wanted me to pray uh, over the over the before the game, before the Orange Bowl game. And um, um, but he um, told me that I had to be careful about how I prayed and uh, what I prayed. And um, uh, and I could not pray in Jesus's name. Um, I was asked by I, I think you, most of you know that there's a guy who is in, the, in Congress right now. He came out of our church in Ocala, Florida. His name is Cliff Stearns. He's a conservative Republican. He's a, an interesting guy. He owned two hotels. He decided he was going to get into government. And the first thing he ran for was the United States Congress, and he won. And it's been up there for, gosh, uh, 20 years, I guess, now. Um, uh, but Cliff Stearns, has, and every periodically, uh, you know, these the congressmen, they get their turn to ask somebody to come pray before Congress. And he's probably asked me twice or three times to come to, to Washington and pray before Congress. And I've turned him down every time. I've turned down the Orange Bowl. Now, and, and I was sitting in a, in a government agency. By the way, the, the Orange Bowl is not a government agency, but the United States Congress is. But uh, I was sitting in a government uh, setting this morning. And, and I was, I, 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 I was, as the guy was praying, um, uh, as the guy was praying, I, I thought, I wonder what would, I mean, what if they'd asked me to pray? They didn't. I'm a nobody. But they didn't ask me to pray. But ladies and gentlemen, what if they had? And then said, you know, we want you to pray, but you don't, don't mention Jesus' name in there. Do you remember that illustrate that, that thing I drew up here a couple of weeks ago? That we're, we have a dual citizenship. We've got the kingdom of man. This is all Augustine stuff. And then we've got the kingdom of God. And they, they're, they're, they're founded in two different principles. And there, there are some places that we um, that we overlap education and health and environment and these things. You know, we we're, we 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 think the same things. But the state was then telling me, or would be telling me, that I cannot be loyal to my real king. I have no choice but to say, I can't do that. You know, I, I, I'm asked, of course, you know, it's just because, not because of, it's just my turn. Um, they call it the, the government, the Germantown alderman call. And they say, you know, we got a Monday night meeting, would you come up here and pray for us? And I did that one time, and um, it was just awful. I mean, not, not, not that the, the aldermen were awful, I'm not saying that. But, you know, guys, um, I can't. Because I, be, I have a greater allegiance to this king than I do to this one. And when this king tells me to obey, disobey this king, this king has got to be disobeyed. That's one of the legitimate limitations of, of the state. They cannot tell me to disobey this king. And when they do, we have to say no. So I can't pray over here. I can pray over here as long as I can be loyal to this king. But if they won't let me, then I have to say, no thanks. And let me tell you, the preacher who prayed today didn't say, no thanks. He, um, I, ooh, it just drives me crazy sitting out there hearing. Guys, do you know the difference in praying and making an announcement? Oh, God. I went to 12 years of, of, of school here in the city of Memphis, and I um, I um, I also uh, spent four years at the University of Memphis. So I'm really interested in this. Cal- That's an announcement, ladies and gentlemen. That's not. Pr- 
praying. Now, the, the, the point, but that's, that was just one of the small things. The other thing was, Jesus never got a, got a line in there. I mean, we, we, we said a lot of nice things about, you know, the political future of the county. But King Jesus was, uh, was kept out. And so I had no choice. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd be better off praying at the Orange Bowl. Because if I'm, I'm forbidden to obey, then I, I mean, if, if I'm forbidden to obey this God, I've got to disobey this one. And so do you. And it may cost us. That's the first area, guys, where, where the government must be resisted. Here's the second. In the area of morals affecting Christian conduct. Now, guys, this is hard stuff because I told Susie, um, I was, you know, I usually prepare this on Thursday morning after it while it's still fresh in my mind. And, and, um, I guess it was Thursday. Yeah, we went out last Thursday night. Um, um, this is hard stuff. I mean, this is, guys, we are to resist the government in the area of morals affecting Christian conduct. I'll give you an example. In Nazi Germany or the government of Hitler's Germany, prohibited any relationship with Jews. No trade, no friendships, no nothing with Jews. In essence, the German government was asking the Christian church to behave immorally. Now, what would you have done? And I said to Susie, I wonder if, because you know what the Lutheran church did, don't you know, ladies and gentlemen, during the Nazi Germany thing, don't you? Lutheranism, I'm not taking on Lutheranism, but uh, Germany, the Christianity of Germany was Lutheran Christianity, basically. And I'm telling you, folks, we didn't do well. You know the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer? This is an interesting little vignette, I think. You know that name, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, wrote The Cost of Discipleship. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in 1939, when Jews were being rounded up, was safely ensconced in New York City. Um, I don't know why he was over here, but he was in New York City, and he went back. And all of his friends begged him to stay. Don't go back. Don't go back. Don't go back. He went back. And as you know, I think it was like four weeks before the, the Allies moved in, he was hanged. He was jailed for, you know, several months. I don't know how long, but for several months. But was ultimately hanged. He was, he was hanged like in April, and the Allies made it through in May. I mean, it's just really tragic. But, ladies and gentlemen, here's the interesting little curveball. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was not hanged because he preached the gospel. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was hanged because he participated in the assassination attempt of Adolf Hitler. That's why he was hanged. Now, ladies and gentlemen, what say ye? Did Bonhoeffer do right or wrong? I tell you, he did wrong. My desperation and my exasperation with the government is to be properly expressed, but it does not give me permission to violate the moral load, moral law of God. It does not sanction murder. 
as wonderful as this brother is, or brother is, and and all. I mean, Susie and I. And it's all my wife's fault. Um, she she's she has really. Every time we go into a European city, you know, you know where we go. I mean, y'all go play golf, and we go to the Holocaust Museum, um, because my wife has this interest in in Judaism and and really in the in the civil rights movement. And so I just kind of tail along with her, you know, but. In, in the course of things, I've developed the same interest. And, and, um, guys, what would you have done? You know, it's hard, it's hard to try to existentially transport myself back into this thing where the government is asking me or telling me that I must behave immorally. How then would I behave? By the way, this is this is to me is just a great example. The, you, you know the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer, but you might not know the name Martin Niemöller. He was another Lutheran pastor um, who was imprisoned for his. I, I really don't know. I was going to say for his uh, proclamation of the gospel, but it may have been his just his opposition to Hitler and Nazis. But he was imprisoned, and in prison he was visited by a. Um, by a pastor friend who brought him this message. He said, um, Dear Martin, you can be released from prison if you promise to not preach on certain subjects. You know what Martin Niemöller said? Oh, this is great. He looked at his friend and he said, Why aren't you in jail? Now, tell me. Where would we have found you? Out of jail? Or in jail? You know, I've, I, I wonder... Where I would have landed. I mean, we watch all these movies about... I mean, there's one movie, and I can't even remember the name of it. Dead gummit. Um, it's not one of the big-time movies, but it was a um, where this guy, he was a German engineer, and he had produced um, some stuff that could filter water for the German troops. And um, so he was hailed as a hero of the of the... Of the of Germany, because he had this filter that they could go out in this river and, you know, just start pumping the water through his filter, and the troops would have fresh drinking water, clean drinking water to fight the battles. And so he was a hero. It turned out um, that what he produced, and I, I, I might have this wrong, somebody can help me, maybe my pharmacist friend, Cyclox, it was the, it was the thing that was used to gas the Jews also. It was also turned into... It, it had that use, and he did. Anyway, so he was taken to one of the uh, in the movie. He was taken to one of the um, the uh, concentration camps to see this other use of his great discovery. And so he was allowed to watch through this glass, Jews being gassed. And and he um, he walked, you know, he staggered away from the window. He goes to the car, and he vomits. 
and he's this up-and-coming, you know, German uh, military star. And he goes back, and he's, I got to do something about this. I got to do something about this. And his father says, now, son, you know, don't do this, don't do this. And so he, he travels to Rome. You do know that Rome's record in the Holocaust is awful. You do know that, don't you? In fact, as I've got a book in my office called Hitler's Pope. The Pope that was in, um, it was in place during the war was called Hitler's Pope. I forget his name, but there all those names are straight. But anyway, um, he, he, the guy travels to Rome. He finds this, this, um, this, uh, I don't know what he's, he's a priest. He's a young guy and they kind of team up and nobody will listen to him. There's a cardinal. They get, they, they wanted to see the Pope and the Pope won't see them and they, they go to the cardinal and the cardinal won't talk to them. The Christian church, ladies and gentlemen. Where would you have fallen? On what side of the issue would you have fallen? Because the second area where we are to, without question, oppose the government is when, is in the area of morals that asks us to be immoral. And it may cost you. I got a better example. So if you're uncomfortable now. Guys, um, it's unlikely, I think, I think, that you and I are going to be jailed. um, Though that day may come. But you may lose your job. Because the authorities are asking you to act immorally. You refuse to be dishonest and therefore you lose your job. Here's the third area, guys. You and I are duty-bound to oppose our government when the government itself acts immorally. And the example that I, I want to talk to you about is the whole civil rights movement of the 60s. Um, guys, I'm a child of the 60s. I mean, I was born in 48. So, you know, I was graduating college in 66, you know, Kent State and all that was going on. And um, um, You know, we have the advantage of 40 years afterwards, don't we? And we look back and we say, well, that segregation stuff, that was bad. That was really bad, that segregation. I mean, uh, I mean, we should have been desegregating. We can all say that now. Ladies and gentlemen, you know who fought the civil rights movement in the South? You want to know? The church. Guys, do yourself a favor. Google this when you get home and print it off and read it. This is um, Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham jail. You ever heard of that? I mean, it's famous. I knew about it, but I... I mean, I didn't, my wife will Google anything, um, and I guess I need to start getting into that. But, I mean, I thought, well, this might, I might be able to find this on there, and I put the thing in there, and there it was. I mean, the whole blasted thing. It'll take you 30 minutes to read it. But this is a letter from Martin Luther King written, by the way, this is in response to eight white clergymen. 
Now, I don't know whether they're from Birmingham, but they were from the state of Alabama. And saying that civil rights should be granted, but it should never be done this way. Um, I, I'd love to read you a lot of this. I, I won't. Um, but I, it um, justice too long delayed is justice denied. Um, and he talks about, he was criticized. Martin Luther King was criticized. By the way, guys, I've never been a huge fan of Martin Luther King because of his theology. But this is excellent. Um, but he was criticized because of breaking of some laws. One who breaks an unjust law must do so openly, lovingly, and with a willingness to accept the penalty. I submit that an individual who breaks a law that conscience tells him is unjust and who willingly accepts the penalty of imprisonment, listen to this, in order to arouse the conscience of the community over its injustice, is in reality expressing the highest respect for the law. Can I read you that again? That is genius. I submit to you that an individual who breaks a law that conscience tells him is unjust and who willingly accepts the penalty is in reality expressing the highest respect for law. Um, I must make two honest confessions to you, my Christians and Jewish brothers. First, I must confess that over the past few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate. Did you hear that? The great stumbling block in segregating this country was the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice. Is that you? Is that me? Would, Would I have been out there? Would you have been out there? Guys, there's some stuff in here about what makes a a law unjust. Yes. Um, How can you advocate breaking some laws and obeying others? The answer lies in the fact that there are two types of laws, just and unjust. I would be the first to advocate obeying just laws. One has not only a legal but a moral responsibility to obey just laws. Conversely, one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. You have a, we have a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. I would agree with St. Augustine who said an unjust law is no law at all. Now what is the difference between the two? How does one determine whether a law is just or unjust? A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. An unjust law 
is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law. To put it in the terms of St. Thomas Aquinas, an unjust law is a human law that is not rooted in eternal law and natural law. Why did the church oppose that? Why did the white Christian church oppose segregation? We all know that that was immoral. Now, 40 years later, we've got the advantage of looking back and saying, oh, well, you know, I mean, we sir, we, we did uh, equality of all men. Oh, yeah, we believe that. That's wrong. Mm-hmm. I'm simply asking you, why did they oppose it 40 years ago? Because it was going to disrupt their own set of comforts, perhaps? That I'm more interested in order than I am justice? You reckon that had anything to do with it? Any? Just a little? Guys, um, it's very, he's very candid about the price that they had to pay and, and, um, one of the scenes, one of the things he says in there about the, there was a few white pastors who, um, experienced the roach infested jails alongside him. And I said to Susie last Thursday night, I wonder, I wonder where I'd have been. Would I have found a way to justify my non-involvement? They did. I, I can't be involved with that because you know, you know uh, it's uh, it's a civil disturbance. But an unjust law is no law at all. And one of the things that they kept saying, they kept they, they kept saying, um, uh, wait, wait. You know, the the white church kept telling him to wait, and. Um, Listen, lamentably, it is an historical fact. Listen. It is an historical fact that privileged groups seldom give up their privileges voluntarily. Individuals may see the moral light and voluntarily give up their unjust posture. But as Reinald Niebuhr has reminded us, groups tend to be more immoral than individuals. For years now, I have heard the word, wait. It rings in the ear of every Negro with piercing familiarity. This wait has almost always meant never. We must come to see, with one of our distinguished jurists, that justice too long delayed is justice denied. I don't know, guys. It's, it's, uh, it's just a theoretical exercise, I guess. Because now we all see the rightness of segregation or, or desegregation. We all see that. I mean, we, we, we've gotten beyond that, haven't we? Surely we have. 
my my great struggle is whereas I am under duty to disobey unjust laws, would I have disobeyed 40 years ago as a pastor? They didn't. It is something to ponder, something to uh, to pray over tonight before you go to bed. That's great. Our Father, uh, that church failed you, and we probably are no less ready to fail you than the church of the South in 40 years ago. We like our comforts. We like... Um, we like order, we like peace, and we will um, conceivably, perhaps, maybe, look away if that can be preserved. I wonder, oh God, where my soul would have led me. And I, I pray that my ill soul will get more healthy. And I pray that you'll make the rest of our souls healthier as we consider the promise of Scripture that if we choose to disobey wrongly, then we will have to face the consequences before you. And uh, that, is a, um, that is a sobering prospect. And so might your people um, once again be sobered, and not by illustrations and stories, but by, but by your word, that cuts us um, deep in our souls. Thank you for the gospel of grace that we get to preach, a gospel that recognizes the ravages of sin, that we are far more wicked than we ever dreamed, and at the same time, far more loved than we ever dared hope. We make our prayer, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you and good night.